All right, so David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Remember that line, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And, God, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. By the way, the way the language, it doesn't come out in the, the English here very well, but like this is intending to say every six steps. Like every six steps from this guy's house all the way up to Jerusalem, they sacrifice an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Let's pray. Jesus, we encounter texts like this, and uh, I confess when I first uh, read this, I was like, okay, we're not going to preach on this one. But Lord, that gnawed at my conscience, and we don't have that freedom. We don't have that luxury. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see with fresh eyes and a deeper awareness of what is going on in your word, such that we understand that even something like smiting someone for trying to catch the Ark of the Covenant falling off of a cart, Lord, that you are still good and a God of love in the midst of that. Lord, help to dismantle the things that prevent us from seeing that. Help us to see... Help us to see that we're after your heart. We pray, Lord, all these things in your name. Amen. So as you, I know, probably guessed from the, uh, uh, my Topo Chico bottle, uh, I'm at St. Louis Cardinals is my second favorite religion. Um, and that is because we, uh, I grew up in and around the city of St. Louis, which also has the world's largest Mardi Gras party and parade of anywhere in the world, second only to New Orleans, okay? That is significant. That's, that's a huge thing for a city that's not that big, uh, especially compared to New Orleans. So when we 
when, you read, when I read texts like this one, and, and I'm trying to imagine, right, this, this biggest, most crazy, joyful parade where everybody's just having a blast and celebrating. In fact, you may not know, like, Mardi Gras is known, it, it has become known for um, exposing oneself for the sake of beads. But, like, Mardi Gras as a holiday actually is, is it's the end of Lent. It's the end of fasting. It's the end of, of it's a feasting. It's, it's a celebration of God's providence, and it's beautiful, right? My, how we take things and run with them in the wrong direction, right? So we don't have to imagine the biggest, most joyful parade in all of history because it's just a bigger in scale than this one. There's music, there's dancing, there's all the best food and drink that you can possibly imagine. There are raisin cakes for days and not a pretzel in sight, if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that that's an inside joke, right? Everything is going great. David's like, this is finally like the, this, this new foundation I'm laying and, and trying to do things differently than King Saul. Finally, we're, we're like the finish line is in sight. And then somebody starts screaming. You can almost hear the record skip, Right? And David rushes to where the ark is because that seems to be where everybody's gathering and, 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 and pointing toward. And he realizes that Uzzah, one of the two brothers who are in charge of the care and the transportation of the ark, like they are the subject matter experts, they, one of them is dead. And he pieces together and he hears from other people that like it's because there's a pothole in the road or something, probably also King Saul's fault, Right? <laughs> And the oxen cart started to tip, and he prevented this ark heroically from falling and hitting the ground, and instead, he struck dead by it, right? David's been king for like all of 10 minutes, metaphorically speaking, right? And he can't even run God's motorcade without it crashing and burning. So when he, it says in verse 9, how could I even... How can I be entrusted with this thing? How can, I be, how can the ark come to me? He is painfully aware that he's barely gotten past the starting line, never mind close to the finish line, before realizing that this is why we can't have nice things. If in reading this passage you experienced any kind of whiplash or shock um, or thank you, to whoever already texted me again saying that Mardi Gras is the beginning of Lent, right? How am I a pastor? How can David have the ark? I'm identifying with him so much right now, okay? Right? If this is whiplash, if this is shocking to you because um, it seems capricious for God to strike somebody dead for trying to prevent the ark from hitting the ground, you're not alone, right? It feels it feels crazy to us, but it, would, it was also, as we just read in verse 9, it was hard for David to even wrap his head and heart around to, the, 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 how hard that was, right? What, what is especially hard for us is, is, is realizing that he went from, like Israel went from death to dancing in three months, right? Like that's a, that's a big pivot. That's a fast turnaround, and it's jarring. It's jarring for a few reasons. One, it's intentionally written to set those up in tension and in contrast to each other, right? That was the, that's the author's intense intent, and that is actually how we should experience that quick turnaround. But it's even more amplified for us, I think, because it contrasts, its contrast confronts one of our most significant idols in the Western church in general, but especially the American church. Like, we are like, hold my beer 
to every other version of this cultural idol. And we're going to talk about that this morning. I only have two points. They're long points, but the first one is it's very simple. Uzzah's death and David's dance. So we're going to start with Uzzah's death. Now, I remember, and I've mentioned before that it was, a, it was B- David being called a man after God's own heart that was kind of the beginning of my own being brought to faith um, and to, to be saved by Jesus when I was in college. But I haven't talked a whole lot about what I was being saved from. And what I was saved from was, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to call this the, uh, the trap of good intentions, okay? I believed before becoming a Christian that uh, if I just had good intentions, that God, whoever he is, he agrees with me. <laughs> he knows my heart, and so I'll be forgiven of any mistakes or failures because if I just had good intentions, then one, I'm probably not going to hurt anybody really. But the bare minimum, that's actually what God is really looking for from me. To say that that did not save me is an understatement. In fact, it enslaved me. But it is that attitude, it is that assumption that looks inwardly at ourselves and says, God must be like us, that makes it very hard for us to understand or appreciate why God might have struck Uzzah dead. And what's interesting about this text is it actually says, this is absolutely nothing about what Uzzah's intentions may or may not have been. Right? It's, it act, we don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was, as we, see, we kind of assume from the text, that it was because he was revering the Ark of the Covenant and did not want the Ark to fall and hit the ground. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was because he did not want to be embarrassed because he failed in his duties and they barely got past the, the starting line. Right? Maybe it was because, I, I have no idea, maybe he wanted to get the, uh, the down payment back on the, the ox cart he rented. I, like I have, there, it doesn't say anything about it. And it's important for us not to fill that gap. But what we end up filling that gap with it's pretty interesting, isn't it? What we read into the text says a lot about us, and this is what I keep going back to and, and is why I'm saying that David's story is a powerful mirror that reflects so much of our own story and how we think we are at least the main character, if not the author. But let me, let's demonstrate this, right? Let's talk about what the Ark of the Covenant actually is, because for most of us, we probably, unless you've like grown up in church, and especially a church that really loved and appreciated the Old Testament like we do, um, unless you did that, you probably, your only reference is like Indiana Jones, okay? Let's be honest, okay? The Ark looked very similar if you've seen Indiana Jones. That's actually pretty accurate in terms of what it was supposed, supposed to have looked like, but it was around four feet long, two feet deep, two feet high. It was made of wood inlaid with gold everywhere, but the lid itself was solid gold and had two cherubim facing each other on the top of the lid. And, and between those two cherubim, like where that is on the Ark of the Covenant, that was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, the space just above the cherubim, just above the, lim- the, 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 the lid, that was believed to be where God's presence on earth dwelled. It resided. The ark wasn't God, so it wasn't an idol, but it was where God's name was. It was where God's presence was. And so bringing God's name and God's presence to Jerusalem was functionally not just... God. David was already Yahweh's anointed king. 
This was about the king of kings, whom David is merely a steward for, coming to sit on his throne. It was God becoming fully in the center and in the midst of his people and returning from exile. It was God culminating with the resolution to Saul's reign, which was an immediate tension that God's people in Israel were experiencing, but it was also finally the fulfillment of this incredible original promise that Yahweh had given to Israel's ancestor centuries before when he told Abraham, go to this land and I will give it to you, but I will give it to your descendants. You will not be able to take this land. I will give it to your descendants and they will, your descendants will be numbers of the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. This was the culmination because entering the promised land was just the first chapter of that transition. Israel now, finally, everything is the way it's supposed to be. Now, the last time we saw the ark was the first sermon in this sermon series. So if you, if you want to go back and refresh your memory on that, you can. It's on the, the Apple podcast where you can, you can stream and download and subscribe to that, right? Um, but in that sermon, I talked about how in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines, under, despite Saul's reign and as king, despite having a king like the nations who was strong and able to protect them, Israel was defeated at Shiloh, the Battle of Shiloh. And at Shiloh, the Philistines uh, captured the ark, took it back to their capital city. And if you remember, there's this fascinating chain of events where they placed it to the side of their, their god's idol in, in their temple. And they woke up the next morning, the idol had been knocked over and was fall, f- had fallen flat on its face. And there was all this stuff happening where they're like, okay, we need to get this out of here because this is a bad idea to keep this... Because Yahweh is not the servant we thought he was. Yahweh is actually a higher God than our God. And they sent it to the various towns in Philistia. And at every town it went to, people started growing tumors and dying. So they're like, okay, we're going to put this on a cart. Put a pin in that. We're going to put this on a cart pulled by oxen. And if those oxen just go straight to you know, where they were from, then we know this was coincidence. But if the, cart, if the oxen pulls the cart with the ark on it to a town in Israel, then we know that this is not a coincidence and Yahweh is behind this. And it, did the, it, did, it did the latter. The oxen took the ark to a, the closest Israelite town and there a man named Abinadad took over as a caretaker of the ark for 30 years. His sons, whether, you know, when it says that somebody is a son of somebody, it could be that they are the grandchildren or great-grandchildren, so it's, it's descendant. It may, may or may not be immediate uh, children, but it says his sons, uh, Uzzah and Ahio, uh, take over for him. And it implies that they are at least functioning as, if not themselves, priests. Their entire life, like, it was their job to be the caretakers of the ark, And so, of course, it makes sense. When David is like, we're going to bring this to to Jerusalem, they would be in charge of it. They would make the decisions about it, and they would determine how it happened in all of the logistics. Now, if that's the case, then they should also be the subject matter experts for how all that happens and how specifically God has said that that should happen, right? They should be subject matter experts and familiar with the law or Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the instructions for handling the ark. For example, 
And these uh, bullet points will be uh, behind me on the screen. But it says that they, you are to cover the ark with several layers of cloth, including a goat skin, because you're not supposed to really even look at it. You're, you're to carry it with two poles, and those poles were then put on the shoulders of Levites. And you are definitely never, ever, ever, ever under any circumstances supposed to open it, as Indiana Jones found out, right? Even priests, okay? And you, you don't touch it. And it's because if, if, if the presence of a holy God resides in the space above the cherubim of this ark, then we can't come into contact with this with this holy and perfect God as sinful, broken people without being burned up and struck dead. But you know what's fascinating is that the difference between the way God says to carry and, and, and move the ark versus the way that Uzzah and Ahio did or the Philistines did is the difference between treating God as luggage or a king. If the only other thing that people carry with poles on their shoulders like that is a palanquin, which is, you know, like it's a chair with a, a nice shade above it for kings and important people to, to be tr- transported on the backs of servants. God's saying that I am a personal God. I am not a thing. I am not a magical talisman for you to carry. Uzzah and Ahio should have known this, Right? They knew, they knew the word. Like every Jewish kid growing up would be memorizing through oral tradition huge swaths of the Torah, if not the entire Torah. So why in the world did they just do their own thing? We don't know. Right? Maybe they're like, you know what would be even better? Maybe if we had oxen pulling it, like, it, like we could dress it up and, and we'll go above and beyond what God said. <laughs> Maybe it was too heavy. Maybe they were worried about priests and how many priests they would need to change in and out as they walked from uh, this small town all the way up the mount to Jerusalem, right? Because it, it was a hike. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that functionally what Uzzah is doing and, and Ahio is doing when they do it this way is they are usurping God's throne. They are saying God's throne is not God's throne, It's our luggage. It's actually here to serve our ends, not us to serve God's ends. What does matter is that they, like the the book of Judges says, they did what was right in their own eyes. They determined, they relied on their own intuition, their own gut, their own decision-making, their own feelings, their own experience, whatever that was, they functioned autonomously. In other words, that word auto and namas, it's a combination of two words. It means to be a law unto oneself. They usurped God's throne by redefining the law according to their own eyes. Autonomy is an interesting thing, right? It it is a, it's a strategy more than it is in, in a perspective or a habit than it is like an identity or something. It is a, so it's agnostic about intentions completely. Its common denominator, though, is that it is a means of self-actualizing, self-determining, self-defining, self-relying. We live in a Western culture. When I was saying before about, about this kind of confronts and exposes an idol that, that we, especially Americans, have, and I mean that by 
And by that, I also mean if you are an American Christian or an American non-Christian, okay? We are not innocent of this. What I mean by that is, is we, we, view the, we view passages like this through the lens of individualism, right? We, we want to define ourselves and then reality in light thereof. And if we get to achieve our own dignity, value, and worth, if we get to define that ourselves and what is important to us for ourselves, then, then, that, then that also becomes how we view the world. And so we are unable to view the world and reality itself, even including God, through a lens other than the one that we have already created, and we're going to miss things, big things. Scripture says something different. It says that we discern reality, that we don't construct it ourselves, but that we seek to understand it and then, in a sense, submit to it and allow reality to define us in light of what God has said reality is. Because if God created all things, then that is a very reliable and wise course of action. That is not our, that is not our default, though. Getting back to Uzzah, though. His sin was not trying to catch the ark, okay? That's not why God smited him. Smote? Smote? It's not why God struck him down. <laughs> he did so be, not because he broke the letter of the law, or necessarily because he even touched it, but because the ark would never have had the chance to fall off a cart in the first place if it had been carried by priests with poles. The error Uzzah made happened before the parade started. In fact, he knew better, he knew Torah, he knew reality, and did what was right in his own eyes for reasons that may or may not be valid, and he'd been doing it his entire life, that's why he didn't see it as a problem. Right? We have all kinds of reasons why. We, right? Think about, think about it this way. Whether we're talking about how institutions are a problem and dehumanizing, or the way that we say, you know, we need to innovate, we need to do something new, because this other way of doing things is outdated or irrelevant, or maybe it just has room for improvement. Like, all of these are, are like expressions of autonomy. They're, they're all saying, we need to figure this out, not we need to discern what God has already figured out and settled. And the, what's crazy is that Uzzah and Ahio, they end up treating God no different than the Philistines did. They treated God like an idol. And like at best, that means that God is kind of an impersonal referee, but at worst, a talisman or a good luck charm that we use for our own ends. It definitely did not treat, they did not treat God as someone who loves his people personally. Okay, can I, can I preach for a minute? I know I have been. Um, I mean, can, I, can we be real? When we're talking about autonomy, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. I'm like, I don't want to apply this one because the things that most easily come to mind about autonomy are the things that our culture is currently fighting over nonstop. And we Christians are both contributing to it and also not modeling a very different thing at all. We're not showing them an alternative that, that says that there's a better way to live and a more flourishing and satisfying way to live. Right? Let me, let me, let me ask this. Who, determine, who determines 
whether or how and or how you Sabbath. Okay? You or the God who commands it as like one of the things, that te- like if, if God's got his top 10 list of things, it's like if you hear nothing else I'm going to say, God the preacher says, remember, don't take my name in vain. You'll have no other gods before me. Also, rest one day a week. Don't work. Oh, that's such a burden. Only American Christians would find that a hard thing to do. Okay? Who determines your gender? You or the one who made you? Who determines whether or how much you love your enemies? Or what that love looks like? Because a lot of people are saying, I love my enemy by telling them the truth. I'm like, yeah, cool. You could do a little bit more than that. You might actually include love in the communication of that truth, right? Who gets to determine that? You or the one who died for them? You or the one who died for you, who before Christ died for you, you were an enemy of God. We don't get to determine these things. These things are actually settled already. And please, don't hear what I'm not saying, like... I'm not saying that these are easy decisions. I'm saying they're not ours to make. God already made these decisions. It's, they're actually settled. Not everything. It's not like we don't have anything less to figure out, left to figure out. It's that we will never get to those things if the things that are settled are constantly up for debate and self-definition. Is it any wonder we have decision fatigue? I mean, we got a lot to figure out. We got to figure out who we are. <laughs> Good luck. We got to figure out, like, what, are, what, what do we do with our lives? We got to figure out, like, how to handle specific situations or arguments with our spouse or how to parent. No, we, well, some of these things we kind of do. I mean, but, but God gives resources for them. Let me, I'm actually going to be real honest here, too. This is why you should take the membership class. Because to become a member of a church is saying, you know what, I'm going to opt into the community and the shepherding of this, of this, of this grace-saturated and grace-centered institution before I feel a need for it so I don't have to wonder where to go when I do need it. Because we, your church, have said we're committed to you. That's what it means, right? We never move on from the fundamental, if we never move on from the fundamental Imago Dei questions that God has already settled, then, then we are just going to, our only, our only other option is self-reliance. Our only other option is self-actualization and self-determination and leaning on our own understanding. And friends, that is a recipe for loneliness, exhaustion, and burnout, and anxiety, and despair. Again, I am not saying that allowing God to define these things for us is necessarily easy. I'm saying, if anything, it is smart. It is actually for our good that God has done that and invites us to participate in that. It is when we have examples like Uzzah's death. It is when how we thought reality and the world worked and who God was and when we, what we thought all of that, how all that was defined, when that is confronted by reality, we call, we call that deconstruction now, right? It's something that happens to you because you, you might have experienced culturally a definition of who God was and what faith and what it meant to be a Christian, etc., and, and it collided with 
with reality. That's what David was experiencing over those three months. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us specifically what that might have been like, but you know, it implies that he was wrestling. So why then does he have this super fast turnaround into delight? How do you go from Uzzah's death to being deconstructed to dancing with delight? Let me refresh our memory by reading verses 10 through 15 again. Because this is so important. It says, So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Pause there. You could hear the repetition as me trying to pronounce three times in a row, Obed-Edom the Gittite. When you see repetition in Scripture like this, it is intentional. It's trying to draw your attention to that, okay? Then it says, so when David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, again, every time. And David danced with the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Okay. What changed? Well, I left something out in my description of you know, our ARC 101 class here. Okay? It's actually what's in the ARC. What's contained in the ARC? What is contained in the ARC are the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on it that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, a jar of manna from Israel wandering around in the wilderness, and Aaron's budding rod. What I mean by that is Aaron, who was the high priest, uh, the first high priest of Israel, who kind of took the mantle and succeeded Moses in, in that sense, uh, to choose him and to choose his tribe, God had all of the elders of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they brought a, a staff with the, the, the patriarch of each tribe with their name inscribed on it, and Aaron's overnight magically, not magically, God caused to grow almond leaves and buds. And so it was God's choosing of God from amongst God's people, his priest, and that tribe as his priesthood. That rod was in the ark as well. Why is that significant? It's significant because all three of these things, they are signs and seals. They are signs and seals. They are almost sacraments, in a sense, of God's historical faithfulness to his promises and to his blessing and to his people. But God did not only bless Israel. He didn't only promise to bless his people, Israel. Let me read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, which I referenced earlier about God keeping his promises and how this is the culmination of that. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is centuries ago, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that... You will be a blessing. What? To who? Each other? Cool. Check. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wait. This is not just about Israel. This is actually about the nations. The word families here, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, is, is the Hebrew word goyim. 
It's the same word we also translate in the Old Testament as nations. It's the word where we get Gentiles, the word Gentile from. Obed-Edom is Obed of Edom, the Gittite. If you didn't get it the first time, of Edom, you got it from, he's the Gittite. He's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. So when it says that the ark, that he was blessed and everything he had and everything he did and his family were blessed because of the ark, this is a culmination and a fulfilling of Genesis 12. See, what's amazing is David, right, the subject matter experts, they totally failed. So who do you leave the ark with? There's nobody better than them. If there's nobody better than them, what are you gonna, you're not going to leave the ark with, your, with any other Israelite. You're going to give it to the Gentiles. It was a self-protective decision. David was trying to just like, all I know what to do right now is to protect the people that God has entrusted me with, and that means you're not his people, so I'm going to put it over there. And then God's like, this is cool, watch this. This is the last thing I'll say before we get into the Q&A. David's connecting the dots. The reason he turned from just spare to delight. It's because if Yahweh is an impersonal referee and a talisman for your best, best life now, then David's insufficiency, his weaknesses that he saw in himself that he knew he could not do this perfectly would be impossible to overcome. But if Yahweh is the personal covenantal God who loves his people, then David's insufficiency as their king is the occasion and the means by which God's going to keep his promises because he was just trying to do the basic thing and couldn't and failed and the subject matter experts, like one was struck dead and God still fulfilled his purpose and his mission and his promise to bless the nations. Not despite Israel's insufficiency, but through them. That's amazing. That's grace. Like what more potent antidote could you possibly hope for to the fear that learning than the fear... to your fear than learning that you can't screw up God's plan even if you tried. No wonder he felt free to dance with delight. When you experience that freedom, you go from sleepless anxiety and paralyzing insecurity to holy relief and an unapologetic delight in Yahweh. Right? This is why, and I'm going I'm to state this very strongly, okay? And, and, and it's going to sound strong intentionally because it's actually true. Autonomy is spiritual suicide. We are not made to live. Our, the, the way that we are designed by God is meant to be in connection with people in and through our vulnerably trusting and submitting ourselves to one another and to God because he is the one who does and accomplishes his blessing and keeps his promises. If he didn't, if he weren't, if he were just a talisman, right, that would be stupid. That would be foolish because then it's just a room full of sinners who are talking about doing this. But if a room full of sinners are doing this in and through the presence because of a a promise-keeping God, it's duh. It's not stupid, it's duh. Autonomy promises freedom, but it leads to disintegration. And Jesus loves you too much to hand over the keys. He loves you too much to let you sit on his throne. 
And we know that he is a good king, and this is why I kept pointing out that it was every six steps that they were making these sacrifices. We know he is a good king because we don't have to sacrifice every six steps. We don't have to sacrifice every six steps to cover our failures or to compensate for our insufficiency because this king made a once and for all sacrifice that covers every step we possibly can and could or will ever make and redeems us through our insufficiency and weakness. Through it, not despite it. It's interesting. I, I, kinda, I struggle with anxiety. I've talked about this before. And there's an aspect of that that, like, you know, I'm probably just always going to struggle with anxiety. But man, I make it worse because I interpret that anxiety as pressure that I need to rely on myself, that I need to do it, and that God is there if I rely on him in the right ways. It's actually when I fail to do so that he is incredibly good and beautiful and gracious. All right, let me see what questions we got. This passage seems to show that good intentions don't matter. Correct. They celebrated and tried to bring God's presence to the capital and executed poorly, and Usa died. Whenever I reflect on this reality, it paralyzes me. Charity often causes more harm than good, and every good action risks terrible consequences. I tend not to act like David and want to leave the arch, the ark alone rather than risk wrath. How do we avoid paralysis when we realize that good intentions are not sufficient to bring about good outcomes? Thank you for asking. This is really good. This is exactly, I suspect this is where most of us probably are, right? Um, and I, can, I say that because I know most of you, and I know your stories, and I know, like me, you try really hard, right? here's the beautiful thing. If what I just said about God is actually through our failures and weaknesses that God works and blesses the nations, and that, that includes our neighbor, it is actually, that, that should free us, not paralyze us. That should actually encourage us that, okay, first of all, let's just assume that we do always have good intentions, okay? If we have good intentions and we have poor execution, it's still not going to stop God because we're not him, Okay? Secondly, you don't ever always have good intentions, right? We're all selfish. Every good thing we have is tainted by sin. There is a, ooh, this is something God said is good, but it's also easier for me, so I'm going to do it now, right? So even that, we're freed because no matter how faithful or unfaithful we think we can be or should be, God is more faithful and steadfast still. And he can use, and not just can, he promises to use your weakness and insufficiency. It's actually his primary MO. Okay, I understand scripture is key to understanding God's work and will. Do you think seeking the voice of the Holy Spirit personally will help us surrender our autonomy? How do we measure the truth of what we believe that we hear personally? Oh, this is good. Okay. This is what somebody, uh, an author named Tara Isabella Burton, you're at, what you're asking about is what she calls intuitionism, Right? When the Holy Spirit says to you, you should go eat ice cream. Okay, it's possible, but probably not, right? That's you being hungry. And our inability, the the way that we determine and, and discern, right? Not determine, discern what is the Holy Spirit talking with us versus what is just our own selfish desires talking to us is whether it lines up with Scripture. 
If it doesn't line up with Scripture, it's probably not the Holy Spirit. It, may, it might just be you, or it might, not, it might be something like even worse, right? But if we rely on our intuition alone and not God's Word, then yeah, that's, that's super problematic. That's why we preach on God's Word and not a TED Talk on Sunday mornings, okay? Okay. What the, okay, wow. What does spiritual suicide look like? Spiritual suicide, as, an, as, as the, let me put it this way, to be a law unto yourself, to pursue limitless freedom, to continue seeing that as the solution to every problem, will by definition remove yourself from anyone who can help you. It may not happen right away, and it may not be obvious at first, but we are made in the image of a Trinitarian God. A God who declared it not, the only thing he declared in creation that was not good was that Adam was alone. To be made in the image of God is to be made in a fundamental, in a fundamentally vulnerable way for community. To be naked and unashamed. To have grace cover us instead of whatever fig leaf we come up with. When we pursue autonomy, when we pursue never... Look, part of what's, part of what's un, um, underneath this conversation is a whole topic I can't get into this morning around like institutional and spiritual abuse that like I get as scary. We have to lean into that though. We have to figure that out and we have to learn in community how to recover the muscles and the muscle memory for vulnerability and trust knowing that that's going on because the alternative is spiritual suicide. It is being so divorced from community and therefore God's ordinary means of grace and how he works in our lives that we, it's all on our shoulders and that will destroy you. It will crush you, okay? If you have more questions, I, there's a couple other I could not get to and if, if, um, if whoever asked that question, if you, if you wanna talk more about that, I'm very happy to because normally... It's, it's the very long and the very brief questions that normally have the most behind them. And so that was a very brief one and want to invite you to, like, let's talk, okay? Let me pray. Jesus, you are good. Your mercy endures forever, forever because you made the once and for all sacrifice that covers us in that which we are most in desperate need of, and that is grace. Lord, I pray that you, in ways that are aligned with Scripture, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move us where you are calling us into deep relationship, even if it's scary. Not that we do so uncritically or blindly. Do we ask questions at every point? And then we talk about the fears that we may have that are keeping us from relying on anyone other than ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would use this church in whatever means you deem necessary so that we would know the delight that David had when he was dancing in front of the ark. The freedom not of autonomy, 
and never being constrained by anything or anyone, but the freedom of being under the allegiance of a good and true king who made us in your image. Lord, give us that grace. We pray in your name. Amen.